Well, hello and welcome back to episode four of Who Rules Cyberspace, a new mini-series from Chatham House on the Undercurrents podcast feed. I'm Ben Horton. I'm a communications manager at Chatham House and I'm also the co-host of Undercurrents. And joining me down the line as ever is my colleague Joyce Hackney. Hey, Joyce. Hi, Ben. It's lovely to see you. Why don't you start us off by explaining a bit about this episode? Yes, of course. So in this episode, we wanted to focus on the civil society. We wanted to get the perspective of civil society because for a long time, the civil society has been marginalized in these conversations. And we wanted to highlight on the very important role that they play, whether it's the role of providing a better understanding of the challenge, the role of the human rights defenders, or the role of creating linkages between the different digital areas. We wanted to speak to them and to understand How can they help shaping this debate and how can they promote and implement the needed capacity building efforts? Lovely stuff. And who did you speak to? So I spoke to Arind Rajid Basu, who is a research manager from the Center for Internet and Society in India. Arind Rajid talked about the role that organizations like his can play in these policy conversations. And he highlighted not only the challenges that they face, but also the challenges that the government faces as well, trying to engage with them. He talked about the importance of cooperation between civil society organizations themselves at the national, but also at the international level. And who did you speak to then? So I spoke to Alison Pitlack, who is a programme manager at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And we basically unpacked what it means for civil society to participate in governance of cyberspace and discussed the various roles that civil society groups are playing already. And I think Alison also really highlighted the important role that these groups can play in places where the country's national capacity on on these issues is lacking. So really getting into this idea of civil society as capacity builders. Great. Let's have a listen then. Okay, so in our first interview for this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Alison Pitlack. Alison is a programme manager in the disarmament programme of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And she was also the NGO liaison for the recent UN open-ended working group meetings on cybersecurity. Alison, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. So I just thought it would be great if we could begin with a question around the role that civil society organisations can play in this debate on on cyberspace. We've already heard in earlier episodes about the role of states in governing cyberspace and also the influence of the private sector as the creators of the technology that we're all using. But civil society organisations also have their own different roles to play in cyber stability. So could you talk a little bit more about this? Could you give us some concrete examples maybe where these actors have helped to shape cyberspace and do you think that there's a clear understanding among these actors about how their roles complement each other and the best ways to coordinate efforts in this space? Yeah well great question and perhaps a good starting point is to just quickly point out that civil society organizations cover a really 
wide range of actors, right? We're not monolithic. So under that umbrella come advocacy groups, research institutes, policy advisors, people with legal backgrounds, technical backgrounds. And then even within that, there is a spectrum and a diversity of interests, priorities, and motivations, and also points of entry to the work on this. So maybe one way to answer that question is, is to look at these different roles that we can play in shaping cyberspace. One that comes quickly to mind is our role in problem framing and threat identification. This is you know, probably most often accomplished through research, evidence gathering, and information sharing or advocacy. And sometimes work in this area is informed by lived experience and the direct work that some civil society organizations have done in responding to victims of cyber attacks. So Access Now, for example, has a 24-7 digital security helpline that provides comprehensive and real-time technical assistance to users at risk. And what they see and what they experience could directly inform and shape understandings about the threat landscape. But threat identification can also be informed by the perspectives that some of us have by working in other areas of international security. I actually very much appreciate the research done by Chatham House in this regard, highlighting (laughs) the connections between nuclear weapons programs, nuclear safety, and digital vulnerabilities. Sometimes I feel that this is maybe a missing piece of the discussion about international cybersecurity is this intersection with existing weapon systems, which is something that my organization is very interested in. And something that else that we have done recently in the area of problem framing, together with the Association for Progressive Communications, has been to bring a gender analysis into discussions of international cybersecurity. So earlier this year, We co-authored a report that looks at how international cyber operations impact people differently on the basis of gender, and what does gender diversity look like at the moment in cyber diplomacy and policymaking? Why and how should that improve? But maybe sort of moving past that, you know, I think a second area where there's a role for civil society, there should be a role in the development of the norms that guide state behavior in cyberspace. As your listeners likely already know, There is now a patchwork of different and sometimes overlapping normative frameworks out there. And some processes to develop those frameworks have engaged civil society groups or academics along the way. Others have not. So, for example, the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace took an approach that was maybe a little selective in which civil society contributed and also quite oriented toward academic involvement. But the norms that came out of it were, you know, at least deliberately developed in a more multi-stakeholder way. I was very taken by a statement that was delivered at the December multi-stakeholder session of the open-ended working group at the UN by an NGO called Research ICT Africa which noted that African stakeholders have remained largely absent from the evolving norms debate of the last two decades, with the result that the norms coming out of the UNGGE are not grounded at all in African perspectives or realities. I thought that was a very compelling statement from them. And then I guess also in this sort of area of norms, there is a large and important role for civil society groups in their implementation which is also an argument for our role in being at the table when they are developed, and relatedly in building capacity and in norm promotion. 
So I'm thinking here quite a lot of technical civil society groups who respond to incidents or conduct trainings and workshops, coordinate responses and information sharing, sometimes in cooperation with the private sector or in cooperation with governments. And then maybe just a, a final area that I'll map out for us here is the role that we have in monitoring for accountability to different normative frameworks that states have endorsed or identifying, you know, quote unquote, bad cyber behavior. And this might take the form of advocacy or might take the form of documenting uh, instances that we're concerned about. Perhaps a few examples that I can think of is the work of Citizen Lab in documenting hostile actions against civil society, human rights defenders, or journalists, the work of Access Now in looking at internet shutdowns. Different academics are increasingly trying to bring more of a database statistical analysis and understanding to interstate cyber conflict. And we're seeing more and more tools like cyber operations trackers becoming available on NGO and research institute websites that help us really get an understanding of, of the landscape and help to demonstrate where there are accountability gaps. So maybe just a, a last point on this on this question is that you know civil society can be professional and it can be organized, but civil society is also people, people who are users of ICTs, people who are vulnerable to their misuse, people who would be impacted by an attack on critical infrastructure, for example, in a multitude of ways that we may not yet fully understand. And so because of that, we are also stakeholders in conversations about shaping cyberspace. That was really helpful. I just wanted to ask something on the diversity, I suppose, of views within the civil society space. How easy is it, in your experience, to engage with civil society organizations in countries that may not share your views on cyber stability, thinking potentially of, of organizations in, in countries like China or Russia or Iran, is there a space for those civil society organizations to engage with this? And how easy is it to engage with them on, on these questions? That's a great question. That's a very complex question. I mean, of course, we can assume or, or say that it's challenging to engage with them. They encounter obstacles to speaking out, to having access to come to meetings, I think sometimes even just to, to communicate well what they're experiencing or what their views are, if their views are different than their government's views. And so that immediately sort of creates a barrier and an obstacle for engagement. I think, however, that that makes their input all the more valuable and important to seek out, provided you're not putting anyone's safety in jeopardy and that you're doing it in a conscientious way. This is maybe digressing a little bit, but, you know, in the different international security forums, including cyberspace, but not limited to cyberspace, that we cover at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, there's always been sort of a lack of civil society groups coming from the countries that you've mentioned. Um, this is definitely true when you're talking about matters of the international arms trade. It's also true when you're talking about nuclear disarmament. So in many ways, maybe a, a lack of involvement to date from NGOs in those countries in, in the cyber forums is kind of just a continuation of what we've seen on other issues of, of hard security. 
you noted how there's this kind of multiplicity of civil society organisations with their own intentions, own purposes and their own interests. And some of those examples were really fascinating that you drew out there. I just wondered to what extent in the discussions that you've been involved in, to what extent do you see civil society recognizing that they have to act as one in this to what extent are these efforts coordinated or are people just doing this great work on their own sort of plowing their own lone furrows i do feel that there is maybe more disparity amongst some of the civil society actors on international cybersecurity than in some of the other issue areas that fall under international security issues or weapons issues for example Definitely, there are a lot of groups, I think, who have a history and a record of working together under other forums or other uh, bodies that have been convened. And you can see that they have longstanding relationships. They're quite on board with the same perspectives. Maybe they all bring a little something different to the table. But I think they're coordinating and working together quite well. But what's been very interesting, I think, particularly in the open-ended working group, is that there are civil society groups and actors, you know, coming from other areas too. Like there are some like my organization, which is a feminist peace organization, but with an interest in this topic and in the context of our work on disarmament and security. And we're meeting some of these groups for the first time. And it's, it's very exciting to see where there's commonality. So I, I feel like maybe it's a little bit spread out, but I think the more that we have a space, a common space, within which to convene, there's definitely more scope for collaboration and and working together. We've mentioned already this open-ended working group process as part of the current UN negotiations. I just wondered if you could tell us what you think of that process as a way of getting civil society more engaged in this and collating the views. Do you think it's been an effective instrument in that sense? No, I think that unfortunately it's been very limited in a lot of ways, and yet it had great promise and it is helping things to move along a little bit. So maybe just to explain a bit to listeners what we mean by that, when the open-ended working group was established at the UN General Assembly's first committee in 2018, one of the big selling points from the governments that sponsored the establishment of the group was its inclusivity and its openness, which is certainly in the context of the open-ended working group versus the group of governmental experts, which is completely closed off. It's been able to involve many, many member states, really any member state that is interested. And it has also included a provision for non-governmental stakeholders to participate. Unfortunately, what's happened in practice is that when it came time for civil society to accredit and register to attend the sessions, there was a decision taken to not allow civil society groups who do not have ECOSOC status, which is a kind of status that civil society organizations who do a lot of work at the UN can get for themselves. So it was decided that groups who did not have this status would not be permitted to attend the meeting. And I have to say that as someone who's been going to UN meetings for more than 10 years, this is very strange to have this sort of blanket 
categorical rejection of groups who have, you know, a very long track record of expertise and work in this area and would be able, in theory, to bring that into the conference room. So it's been very limiting and disappointing that that has continued to happen. It happened at the first session. It happened again at the second session in February. Maybe what has been positive, I think, in lieu of having a lot of stakeholders at those meetings was the multi-stakeholder session that took place over three days in December 2019. There were more than 100 groups who came out and participated in that over a three-day period. And that was really the opportunity to share inputs across the same six agenda items that states have been talking about in the group. And member states were in the room and they were in listening mode and they were receptive and they were asking questions. But it was really an opportunity for us to sort of give the experience and expertise that we would have wanted to be giving at all the meetings. So how do you think that this could have been done better? As you've said, do you think that the reality versus the intention of this group could have been sort of realised more effectively? Or do you think instead that there might be alternative means that we could engage civil society in this process beyond the working group model? Yeah, definitely. There are there are alternative ways. And, you know, some could argue that they might even be more fruitful and effective than sitting in the back of a conference room. But it is a very important point to not step back on the access to meetings. You know, this is important for transparency and legitimacy in a process. It's important for effectiveness and real world impact. And it's important as a point of principle to not give up the spaces that we as civil society have worked so hard to carve out for ourselves. Nonetheless, there are definitely other avenues to share information, to influence, and to engage. I think that maybe one of the the benefits right now with, with life in the pandemic is that there are so many more virtual meeting opportunities. And so maybe building on that a little bit is the potential to organize briefings on thematic issues that are coming up in the open ended working group or to organize online workshops and spend time engaging with delegates in that way. What has been good throughout is that the open ended working group website will publish any written input from any civil society stakeholder, whether you have ECOSOC status or not. And that has been really made available and promoted to states. And if you read through the different inputs that are there, it ranges from very technical inputs to maybe more wider conceptual arguments and framing There are responses to the draft text that's already been emerging. So it's a very big spectrum of resources. And then maybe a final thought on this is that it's important to remember that, you know, national positions might evolve in the UN conference room, but they are made at home. So I think there is a lot to be said about connecting with policymakers outside of the meetings, meet with them in capitals, meet with them at home to share your views, to share your experience, your information, et cetera, and work to shape and understand their positions well ahead of an open-ended working group meeting. Thanks very much. So final question today is thinking about the countries involved in this process that support this multi-stakeholder approach, which I think we all agree is, is so important. What do you think those countries can do to ensure that there is more input from civil society organizations into shaping this debate? Uh, Great question. I have have three ideas for you. (laughs) Well, the first would be, you know, to those states who have supported our inclusion at the Open-Ended Working Group 
or in other multilateral forums that shape the cyberspace debate, you know, first to say thank you, and also to please continue to do so, and to do so vocally and on the record within meeting rooms, but also within your separate discussions with meeting chairpersons or facilitators or with other states, including, you know, those who are opposing our inclusion or those who also support it, but maybe are looking for some allies. Second point would be, I would encourage finding a way to not just improve, but also solidify multi-stakeholder access in any future standing body that might be established by the open-ended working group or under UN auspices, so that rather than having to make this argument about access every time there is a session or a meeting, having a standing rule of procedure on civil society access, which is common across most bodies and forums, would be a way to sort of lock in a multi-stakeholder approach. And then thirdly is maybe it goes a bit to my earlier point about, about work at home, but you know, to states, you know, make space for consultation at home with your national or regional uh, civil society and academia. And whether that takes the form of an open call and consultations, maybe a bit like the Australian government organized recently or other formats in, in Canada recently, we've been having a Canadian cyber dialogue on an annual basis. Be open to that and also be proactive. Civil society, NGOs, you know, we're keen and we're passionate about the topic that we work on from whatever angle it is, and we're happy to engage. But it's not always easy for us to navigate governmental systems, to, to get to the people that we want to talk to, to know how to find them. It can also sometimes just be a bit intimidating. So even when we're coming to you in a constructive way and in a way that could bolster your international work, I think it's also helpful when, when states you know, look for us to do a little bit of homework, find us and have a dialogue together about representing national interests in the international forums. Alison Pitlack, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm joined by Arind Rajid Basu, the research manager from the Center for Internet and Society from India. Thank you for joining us, Arind Rajid. Thank you, Joyce, so much for having me. Uh, Arind Rajid, the first question that I'd like to ask you is about the role that organizations like the Center for Internet and Society play in the cyberspace debate at the national but also global level. And to which extent do you think the country of origin of the civil society organization, in your case, India, play a role in shaping this engagement? I think before I answer that, I think it's important to classify civil society organizations into broadly two kinds. Right? One is the research and policy set of organizations like the Center for Internet Society and largely what, what Chatham House does. And the second is more advocacy organizations that do lobbying. So both in terms of lobbying parliaments or lobbying agencies within government or uh, engaging in advocacy efforts at courts, right? We need to, I think, segregate these two kinds of civil society organizations because they have two very different theory 
degrees of change. And of course, in India, we have both of those kinds of organization, but CIS is very much the uh, former where we do research and policy, both policy and academic uh, research. Of course, some of the organizations uh, do both these kinds of activities, but in India, we have a very uh, clear uh, law called the Foreign Contributions Regulations Act, which says that whenever an organization takes any amount of foreign funding, then the extent to which it can lobby the government is restricted. So that is just something that I wanted to point out. So in terms of what CIS has been doing, uh, we were formed in 2008, and between 2008 and 2016 and 17, we were focusing largely on domestic policy debate. So on the privacy debate in India, on the freedom of speech and expression debate in India, on the debate regarding intermediary liability, and really our cyber norms work or our global discussion on cybersecurity has been an extension of this research that we've done on the uh, domestic sphere. And it continues to be that. And I think that is a very important angle because if as a country or as a civil society organization, you are saying that international law or international human rights law should apply to cyberspace, you can't simultaneously have the longest running internet shutdown in the world. You can't simultaneously have arbitrary press censorship, right? So there is a definite link that needs to exist between the extent to which international law or international norms are applied to domestic policy and therefore the way in which it is advocated for at the uh, global level. And really that's what uh, civil society organizations like CIS have been trying to portray in our research to the government. So in terms of the extent to which, and this is where the second part of your question becomes relevant, is that the extent to which the government takes it up is very much dependent on that government itself. And uh, the Indian government, for example, is uh, sort of well known for having a very talented, but a very small uh, foreign policy establishment compared to other countries. So India at any point in time has thousand uh, diplomats serving in the Ministry of External Affairs, including those who are serving as ambassadors, whereas the US has three times that number. So therefore, their capacity to engage with uh, civil society organizations and to engage with the research is obviously limited. So very often, the issue that's actually taken up by the government is impacted by which issues they consider to be an immediate foreign policy priority. So in the case of India, the debate on the digital economy or on cross-border data transfers, they have been considered as being of immediate significance at, at the domestic level and at the strategic level. And the broader cyber norms discussion that's going on at the UNGGE and the UNONEWG, and including the UN cybercrime discussion, uh, that has uh, been, I mean, to a large extent, I would say neglected. And therefore, the research that's been produced by CIS and other civil society organizations have been picked up but has not been implemented perhaps as, as well as uh, we would have liked. So while there is a great amount of scope for civil society organizations to actually influence the discourse, that is very much dependent on the capacity and the willingness of the government to actually take uh, suggestions on board. And Indraji, just before we move on to the, uh, to the next question, so you're talking about the capacity to influence the debate for a civil society organization is very also depends very much dependent on the government's willingness to engage. So what do you do when there isn't a willingness to engage? And what can organizations like CIS do to overcome this challenge? So even if the government doesn't have the capacity to engage with, with us, there are various other stakeholders that we do try to uh, work with. And th that includes simply having conversations like these with uh, esteemed colleagues such as yourselves, where you engage with civil society organizations in other parts of the world and hope that through sort of collective engagement, whether it's through research or through transnational advocacy uh, networks or through co-authored reports or co-hosted events, that if your government is not picking it up, it's possible that 
other governments or other international organizations might pick it up, particularly if it's after engagement with a number of organizations in other parts of the world. So I think the uh, extent to which an organization can influence the policy discourse is, of course, limited by the government. But I think to make a very important point that that uh, sort of engagement needs to happen with actors at the transnational level as well. And that's equally important as another avenue of influence in the discourse. Thank you very much. And this is actually a very good segue into the next question that I have for you. You're talking about the importance of engagement between civil society organizations themselves. And my question is that we often talk about the need for the multi-stakeholder conversation to happen in cyberspace governance between state and non-state actors. But we don't really talk much about the relationship between civil society organizations themselves, whether in the same country or across different regions. How would you describe that relationship? And what do you think are some of the existing opportunities and challenges to improve it? I think let's, I would just like to split it up into two halves. One is civil society organizations in the same country or in the same region, and then civil society organizations across regions. So when we talk about civil society organizations in the same country, and particularly organizations in the developing world, there is the major challenge that we face is that philanthropy, in including in countries like India, which are developing relatively fast, is that the philanthropy here is still largely dedicated to causes such as poverty alleviation or education or, you know, basic, uh, not so much of research. So more of just ensuring that sustainable development goals are met rather than on high level policy research. So when uh, we conduct this policy research, whether it's on digital rights or on international relations, a lot of the funding actually comes from a limited, great set, but a limited set of donors from, from abroad. And what happens is that very often, Civil society organizations are competing with each other for relatively limited funding pool, right? And therefore, there is an inclination, including among among us, to ensure that our name is is sort of the one that's uh, showcased. Although a number of donors have stressed that collaboration is also something that needs to be highlighted. So, in that sense, I would say that because of the funding crunch and capacity crunch that organizations in the south face and the need to collect to uh, pitch for limited sources of funding. That definitely limits the extent to which we can collaborate with each other. And uh, everyone wants to sort of carve out a niche for themselves. A lot of these organizations are very young. We are 12 years old and we are already one of the dinosaurs of the field. There are so many great organizations that have come up who are one year old, two years old and doing some some great work. So there's definitely a need to establish oneself, which often shapes the way in, in which civil society organizations collaborate with each other. At the same time, I think it is also important for the older organizations. And I would say CIS is one of the older organizations to actively collaborate with a number number of different organizations who are at different stages in their work. And we've tried, tried to do that, although I think that there is definitely more that we can do in terms of uh, not just organizing joint events, but perhaps coming out with joint volumes of research, building a capacity among students so that we can have uh, more people joining joining the space. So that's at the domestic domestic level, right? And the second ang- second point at the domestic level is also that often certain funders, none, uh, luckily we don't have those kind of funders, but certain funders, especially the government, when they fund a civil society organization, they have a very clear agenda in terms of what they want the civil society organization to do and what that organization cannot do. And when, when you receive funding from that sort of a donor with an agenda, it's very difficult to do things that are outside that agenda. So if collaboration with a certain kind of organization is forbidden by that uh, funder, uh, then it becomes difficult to actually very often uh, move beyond uh, those lines. And I think that's something that we also have to bear in mind. Although 
that, that this shouldn't be an hindrance uh, permanently at all. In terms of the global level, I think, as I was saying, there are so many important conversations, so many transnational advocacy efforts. So an example that I have been studying closely recently is the uh, coalition against internet shutdowns, the coalition that litigates against internet shutdowns driven by access now. It's called the Keep It On Coalition. And they've done a great job of actually getting advocacy organizations both in the global south, but also back them up with resources and legitimacy that older organizations in other parts of the world have. And they've had some success in in across the world. But at the same time, I think it's important that while these sort of conversations and academic exchanges and combined advocacy efforts are important, there are uh, challenges. And the major gap, of course, is just funding. I think it's still definitely easier and there is just more funding available in the US or in the UK than is available in, in other parts of the world for the reasons that I, that I mentioned, just because the philanthropy in the developing world is not uh, structured the same way that it is in the, in the developed world. And of course, um, many organizations are also much older than their counterparts in the in the global south. You made a very clear point about it's not just the willingness to cooperate, it's also having the resources to be able to do that, whether at the national level or at the international level. Which brings me to my following question on capacity building. And capacity building is often considered, as we know, one of the low-hanging fruits that a lot of countries agree on its importance for the security and stability of cyberspace. How can we ensure that capacity building efforts, in your opinion, are better suited to the country's needs? And what role can the civil society play in this? And you did mention that sometimes civil society organizations are very much confined by what the donors want by their agenda. So how can we make this agenda better suited to the countries and what can civil society do to enhance that? Great question. Very important point. So a civil society organization should definitely offer their, their expertise to, to the government and structure it in a way that actually works for the needs of that specific government uh, department or even specific that specific government individual that they want, want to work with. And that's very important. But at the same time, there needs to be buy-in from the government. Capacity building can only happen if the government is willing to build their, their capacity in, in that regard. And this is not only technical capacity in terms of actually preserving technical cyber defenses, but also in terms of framing cyber policy in a manner that is in line with that specific country's best interest, it will only happen if the government decides that this capacity is worth building. And civil society organizations have a responsibility there as well to make their research palatable. So, for example, publishing four uh, peer-reviewed journal articles a year is a very impressive feat, but we have to question to what extent the government officials will actually go ahead and read those articles. So then it becomes important to perhaps summarize them in blog posts or organize events around them. And this is, again, at CIS as well on reflection, we have maybe not done this as well as we should be. Very often, the focus is on either publishing a series of op-eds or on uh, publishing long reports, but we haven't been perhaps good enough in terms of bringing it down for a busy policymaker who's very sharp but just doesn't have the time to go through a 50-page uh, report. And I think that is a role that civil society organizations have to play in terms of telling the government that we can actually participate in capacity building, but that has to be through better communication and dissemination. That's something that we are trying to do uh, uh, very aggressively at CIS to build our own communication strategies. Yes, I mean, you have highlighted the importance of exchange between the different organizations who have different kinds of capacity and the importance of complementarity because civil society organizations cannot do 
everything, like one organization cannot cover all these areas. But you made a very important point about it's not enough to produce the research. It's not enough to do the in-depth analysis. It's how do we make sure that there is an uptake from policymakers on this research, that they understand what the findings of this research are and use those findings to shape their policy development. I think these are extremely good and valid points. Thank you again, Arin Rajit, for your time and for giving us the perspective of the Center for Internet and Society from India. Thank you again. Thank you, Joyce, so much for having me. This was a great conversation, an example of the kinds of conversations that I hope happen more regularly between civil society organizations all across the world. So that's it for this episode of Who Rules Cyberspace, the Chatham House mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear the rest of our output in this series, then please do subscribe to Undercurrents on whichever podcast app you use. And if you've enjoyed it a lot, we would love it if you would leave us a review because it makes it far easier for other people to find us. If you'd like to hear more about the work that Joyce, Hakme and the team in the International Security Programme are doing, you can follow them on Twitter at Chatham House ISR. Of course, huge thanks need to go to Esther Naylor in the International Security Programme who has put this series together and has provided editing support. And also thank you to Jamie Reed, our sound producer for Undercurrents, who has been with us throughout this crazy year of, of enormous amounts of podcast output. And of course, thank you to the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their support of the Cyberspace for All project. We'll be back tomorrow with some more exciting conversations. Until then, I'm Ben Horton and you've been listening to Undercurrents.